Hello everyone, this is episode eight of Life in Sport and I'm delighted to be moving into the media a little bit. Um, Conor McKeown, a journalist with The Independent, you're very welcome. Um, I probably have done the least amount of preparation for this interview, which is probably very naive because our jobs are actually very dissimilar. Um, how are you today, first of all? I'm very well, I'm very well, enjoying the sunshine, yeah. Yeah, I was just, I was actually going to suggest we do this outside, but um, the amount of lawnmowers going, I think it probably wouldn't be a good idea for the sound. Um, Connor, tell everyone first of all about your um, your background in sport. Um, well, like when I was younger, I think we played nearly every sport. Um, we would have played, um, yeah, practically every sport that, that that young people kind of play in Dublin. Um, but particularly Gaelic football and hurling, uh, would have played for Luke and Sarsfields because that's where we lived, and played for a local soccer team as well. But um, I suppose my father came from Artane and. Um, my mother is from Dublin as well, and they would have had a very, my dad would have been one of the sort of people who grew up kind of sort of bewitched by Hefo's army, you know, and that was always a very, very strong kind of a presence in our house, you know, the decades of the dubs, DVDs. And besides playing football and hurling, I think, you know, the biggest sport and memories that I have were kind of going matches, um, GAA matches. Um, kind of around the country you know I suppose they're the ones that stick with you you know going down on a Sunday afternoon to wherever you're going to watch uh, Dublin or whoever else you know like if there were teams playing in Crow Park we would have always gone into league finals and, and things like that uh, the odd time I remember blagging a ticket for All-Ireland finals so well the interest in sport would have been huge and it would have played like golf and table tennis and boxing and nearly everything Um, I think the GAA was always the one that's in the back of your mind and it was they were the sports that I followed most closely um, so I suppose it was natural enough that, you know, when I got into journalism, that that would be the way I gravitate because I suppose they would be the ones that they'd be exposed to most. So were you one of these people that kind of knew early on that you wanted to try and make a living in sport? Like whether or not you knew you wanted to be a journalist or whether you knew you could be onto a good thing, which sometimes is very naive because it's not the easiest life to choose either. But did you know early on? Yeah, um... I was, I was sort of unbeknownst to myself. I was really interested in journalism. I, I, I always read newspapers. They were always around the house. Um, my dad read the Evening Press and later the Evening Herald. And I would have sort of started to buy newspapers myself, uh, maybe younger than any of my friends did, or even like you know a lot of my friends never did. Um, and I was very interested in sports journalism. You know, at the time, it, you know, particularly a, a story like. Stories that stand out are like the Michelle Smith story or Saipan in 2001. The, the big controversies, not necessarily necessarily for the controversial element to it, but for the fact that sport was commanding the attention of the public. There was something very glamorous about that to me. You know, we yeah. don't really have it anymore because like, we used to have it with television programs that everyone used to watch and come into school on a Monday and speak about. But I think sport is really the last thing that we all watch in unison. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's a new dimension to it now that not only are we all watching the same sporting event at the same time, but we're looking at our phones to see what everybody's saying on Twitter about it at the same time. So in a weird way, despite the fact that we're all, you know, in our own sitting rooms, it is one of the last kind of great communal experiences. And there was something about that that I found to be really, really I suppose, glamorous nearly. But I never, you know, like every essay I did in school was like somehow sporting themed. And I love reading and I love writing. And but and like sports journalism for me would have been the most possibly glamorous job that you could possibly do, um, which I think doesn't say an awful lot for a younger me. But, it, you know, in my head, it was like, there was no way I was going to be able to do that. You know, and, and yeah. like, it was one of those things where I might read an interview with, you know Paul McGrath in the Evening Herald and I'd be like well I can't do that because I don't know Paul McGrath you know like that's the kind of barriers you, you, you kind of mount for yourself so I went off and did something different in college and then realized I hated that and then kind of came back to journalism a little bit later than they should have done it in the first place just because I just didn't think it was an accessible thing. Mm, that's interesting um did yeah you probably found though like what did you study initially then when you when you finished school what did you go and do and hate? <laughs> I, I did business because like everybody I went to school with either did business or computers. Like, I mean, it was all very general. Nobody exactly knew what he wanted to do. Um, and yet still, like I, I would have, at that stage, I would have had a big interest in club GAA and I was going to matches for no other reason than I was interested. And I don't know, it was weird. I never made the connection between this is something that I do 
as a hobby and that I have an active interest in. And here's a job that you could kind of use that interest and whatever knowledge or contacts that you built up. It took a while for that penny to drop. Now, I still got into it at a relatively young age. I had my, my, a good friend of mine now who taught me music when I was a kid, um, Sean Potts, was the deputy sports editor of The Herald. And he was a great friend of my father's. And his father was a great sort of, um, his father was a great, um, he was sort of the godfather of traditional Irish music in Dublin for a lot of young musicians growing up. But, the, you know, we would have had a big interest in GAA as well. So we would have all traveled to matches together to watch them. And because Sean worked in the newspaper game and he knew people that were involved in the team, you know, in the car on the way down, we didn't just talk about the match. You know, he would have stories about the sort of characters the players were. And I found that to just be fascinating. Like, like mm-hmm. I, I, I was instantly drawn to that. Um, and I think through that, then I got into newspapers and reading some, you know, Irish sports journalists at the time, you know, people like David Walsh and Paul Kimmage and, you know, um, you know, really, really brilliant journalism. And uh, the way they wrote about GAA in particularly, um, maybe not those specifically those, but Dennis Walsh and Vincent Hogan. And, mm-hmm. you know, the way they wrote about GAA, even matches I wouldn't be at a Munster hurling final, um, that kind of really resonated with me. And I just, I, I, I was drawn more and more to it. And it, 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 it was true, Sean, that I, I made a contact um, and, and started to work in a quite, you know, at a, at a covering club matches. But, um, you know, until I started doing it, I didn't really think that I'd ever be able to do it. That's mad. That's fascinating because actually, you know, what you're talking about there, this innate, like this, this knowledge that you had built up, this kind of, it kind of happened very organically because of the way you were brought up. Um, and, you know, the contact, even just the contact book, the network of people, like that's not something that um, everybody would have. And actually, it's a massive tool when you're working, particularly in print journalism, because you're just chasing stories all the time. Um, so in a way, you know, that was part of the hard work. Did you always write then as well? Like, you know, when you say you were going to club matches, even before you, you know, before Sean um, got you a contact in a newspaper, did you... Um, did you write stuff or were you just like taking taking in everything all the time? Yeah, a bit of both. Like, you know, I was kind of fascinated with the scene itself, you know, like I suppose like what's, what, what sports writers do is they kind of, you know, they build myths, you know, they build mythology around people, you know, um, and I, I, I kind of actively bought that mythology from other people that not only wrote about those sports people, but talked about them on the way to matches or in pubs afterwards or whatever it was. So there was something about that. And, and like, like it's a weird thing, you know, from again, like the two big strands for me growing up would have been music and, and sport. And the thing that I was fascinated with were people who reached a really high level in both of those things. You know, I'd be fascinated by musicians who were brilliant. Why were they brilliant? What was it about their character that compelled them to become brilliant? You know, did they have a greater level of technique because they practiced more or were they just somehow more in tune with the music on a kind of, you know, almost a spiritual level? And it's the same with sports stars. You know, we're all drawn to the story of, you know, this guy's a natural footballer. He, you know, he came out of the womb able to kick off his left, which generally tends not to be true. But, but it's really interesting to examine that. Um, and I think it's the same thing, you know, I, I was just kind of fascinated by people who are, who, who reach a very, very high level of ability in things who are kind of, um, you know, probably because I couldn't myself. So you're just kind of mm-hmm. like, well, how did you figure it out? You know, and, and yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that's kind of what attracted me to write and draw about these people, because I'd be naturally interested in people telling those stories anyway. I, that's quite, I have a very, very similar background to you, except that it wasn't really traditional Irish music. It was more classical and jazz. I played clarinet for years, um, like probably until I was about 20 and then everything just kind of got in the way. But I would have been in orchestras and all sorts for years. And I think that thing that you're talking about is discipline. Yeah. Because, you know, you'd be so disciplined to, you know, practice your clarinet or practice your pipes, you know, when everyone else is out doing something else or going shopping or you have a match and you have to train. And like, I think it's discipline and I think it's something um, maybe quite independent to just really disciplined people (laughs) who get that far. And like you, I mean, I'm not saying you didn't get that far because I know you're a brilliant piper, but I never got that far in sport or music. Um, But again, I was kind of fascinated by people that did. 
Um, but I think it's discipline. I think that's what it is. I think that's the key ingredient. Yeah, well, I, I, kind of, I read that book by um, um, the guy who's in Sports Illustrated, The, the Sports Gene. It's a really, really oh, interesting book. Oh, yeah, it's very book. good. I have it's a just a really, really interesting book. And it kind of, it, not that it doesn't dispel the 10,000 hours myth, but it adds another level to it. It's like, well, you can practice, me and you, Avant, could start an instrument or you know a sport tomorrow and we could practice for the same number of hours but there might be something in your genealogy that will accelerate your development you know Mm -hmm. and we hear an awful lot now and it's become a cliche and I regret the fact it's become a cliche because I find it very interesting is they talk about the culture of a squad you know you talk about the culture of the Dublin football squad or the Limerick hurling squad Mm -hmm. and when people say that people switch off because they hear it so much but I think when they actually try and break down what that entails it's actually fascinating and it tells you more about why these teams are successful because there's no doubt you know for me and you and for other sports writers now it's a it's a weird stage i think there's there's less and less access to what these teams are doing so there's less public knowledge there's there's less of an opportunity to tell their story but i think there's more of a story to tell you know people bemoan the you know the lack of characters and you know former intercounty players telling brilliant stories about how they all used to play cards on the bus on the way home and have a few points but the guys who are playing intercounty football and hurling now are, are you know elite athletes in every way shape and form everything that that entails and every year they're pushing the boat out a little bit more every year they get more expertise every year the the best practice around sports science and tactical development and even the sort of cerebral side of playing your game that's constantly improving and, and uh, I have to say from that from we spoke about being interested in why people became virtuoso musicians as well as brilliant footballers and hurlers and athletes I think you know there's an act of curiosity there and that keeps you going because for me there's nothing you know if I was as an editor of a newspaper I would anything that arrived on my desk that was written by somebody the theme of which was things used to be better in my day we just bin it straight away because mm. you know that that's that just means that you're in the wrong game now the thing has moved on and you failed yeah. to do it because if you're not still fascinated by this you know it, it you know, it's a long week to get through five yeah. days of work, of work if you don't have any interest in what people are doing anymore, you know. Tell us about your week then. So for people who, um, you know, are, are interested in, in sports journalism as a career, because um, there's so many different ways to work as a sports journalist and your job is different to my job. Hmm. So what, what does your week look like, um, say, in the height of championship um, or even at the moment during the league? Like it's so busy, there's so many matches because we're playing catch up in so many things as well um so like do you get monday off and then just go hell for leather for the week or what way does it work no monday tends to be we all work um so i started when i started working for the independent i was working across the titles in a kind of a full-time freelance role then i became um exclusively working for the evening herald more recently that's back now to the irish independent so we have a big ga reporting team because um, you know the GA is a big is a big yeah. part of the Irish independence constituency so we all work on a Monday because that's the day we have an editorial meeting because you tend to find once the week starts okay on a Monday you might still be reflecting you know if you looked in if you looked in today's newspaper for instance or Tuesday's newspaper but um, an awful lot of the stories that are in it would be follow-ups from what happened to the week from the weekend so you know your Monday kind of nearly looks after itself but mm-hmm. you also have an editorial meeting to plan for the week because, you know, like once the week starts, if you don't have four or five things, particularly when you have a big enough team like we do, we have to make sure that not only are we covering all the important things, but also the fact that we're not all tripping over each other to, you know, yeah. like when a big story breaks, say like the rail between Clare and Wexford last week, you know, we're all working different days and we all have to make sure that there's no kind of cross wires. So, you know, they can be good weeks when you have an unexpected story to cover. They can be busy because you spend an awful lot of time on the phone, particularly about a contentious issue. Um, but covering the live story, I find, is, 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 is much more kind of interesting. It'll get you through the day an awful lot faster than kind of scratching around trying to pretend that you know, you're in an interesting week, but you're not. But what's great now is that there's so many games. So like once you get into the week, like we'll earmark maybe four or five features that different people will do for the week. Um, you know, Saturday is obviously the biggest day in the paper. So you take an awful lot of unique original material and put it there. You might have a press. I think there are a couple of press conferences this week or to year having one on Thursday that I have to do, which is now by Zoom, which obviously, you know, it, it's not as time consuming. You don't have to go to Montrose or whatever. But, you know, they're, they're probably not. The interviews aren't probably. Uh, well, they're definitely not as personable as they used to be. And then when you get to go to the match at the weekend, you, you know, you're kind of sent to whichever match 
you have to go to, which if it's on Saturday, you'll end up covering it for the Sunday Independent as well as Monday's newspaper. If it's on a Sunday, then obviously you just do it for Monday's newspaper. And for me, you know, I, I, again, I know an awful lot of the guys that do my job and have been doing it for a long time, they kind of, they nearly dread the weekend, particularly this time of year when you might be spending three or four hours in your car on your own on a Sunday. But like, that's the part of the week that I enjoy most. You know, again, if, if, if you're not, if you're not enthused by going to the games, if you're not kind of fascinated by what's going on in the pitch, if you can't, you know, adequately break down what's going on and kind of make some form of analysis or learn something from it, you're probably in the wrong job. So, you know, that's the bit that I like. You can be gone all day Sunday, but, um, and I love Sundays off, but I very rarely have one. And I've been doing mm. this for the last, whatever, 15, 16 years. So kind of used to it now. So because of that, I'd have a day off during the week. It tends to be, yeah. it tends to be Wednesday, which, which breaks up the week nicely. But we'd have a couple of, you know, we might be doing a couple of big projects. So uh, the, obviously the championship is coming very hot on the heels of the end of the league this year. So we'll do a championship supplement, like a big magazine. And because that's happening the week after the league final, you know, we have to put in the plans into place now as to who's doing what. Um, and then this weekend, I think there's, there's over four days, there's kind of a series of features about the, the 1991 saga between Dublin and me because it's 30 years ago. So again, they're kind of big projects that we knew a while ago we were going to do that you kind of have to build into your, your week's work as well. So like it, 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 it's, it's okay. It, it's, you, can, you can end up working an awful lot of, late evenings which can be hard um but again like i wouldn't be starting at nine o'clock in the morning unless there was a press conference on um, and something that was breaking so it, it, like it, it's an easier job to do i think when you're a bit younger because yeah. you know your day is kind of yours to yourself you know you can put your laptop away at six o'clock now and say well that's grand i'm in for the evening and then something happens at half nine that night and you have to turn something around very quickly you have to ring somebody get the story make sure it's okay and get it sent so like there's a bit of versatility involved, but I think mostly it works both ways. Yeah, it sounds like um it sounds like nothing is very defined. So um it must be difficult to switch off. I mean, obviously, if you're on a day off, you can fully switch off. But like you say, if you filed all your copy for the day and you know, there we go, I have a feature in, I've you know, I have three stories in, and then something happens, like the dubs get caught training during a COVID uh ban at five o'clock in the morning or whatever it is. Um you have to switch on um, at the drop of a hat. Does that yeah. happen often? It, 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 yeah, it does. The only thing about it is that, like, you know, that there, there's four, there's five of us that are, uh, if you want to say, beat GA reporters with the Irish Independent, um, kind of working the daily um, beat. So, you know, on any given day, you'd have three or four people working. So, you know, if, if that does happen to you, you know, and you're the one that has to kind of drop everything and you have to shelve plans and, and features that you've written. You know, like there were features that we wrote in the last lockdown that never got published, basically, you know, because all of a sudden the, the, the lockdown became the story. That would break my heart if I, if I wrote a few features. They never uh, got out. Yeah, well, and I can't publish probably a couple of them now because the people who spoke to you, if you publish them now, be saying, I can't even remember that conversation. Yeah, happened, yeah, yeah. You know? But that's just, you know, that, that's the way it is. And I think for, for newspapers or for media organisations, which are increasingly going online, which are now finding a way to generate revenue from, from digital content, which is obviously, you know, the way things are just going globally, being versatile and being able to check a story or get a story or get a reaction to a story at any time of day or night, I think is probably one of the better skills that you can have as a, as a reporter, regardless of what field you're in. Yeah, that's so true. Um, do you find that that is something that comes with time as well. I mean, I know you're doing this a long time. Yeah, like, uh, you know, the first few years, you spend an awful lot of time ringing people that are never, were never going to talk to you, you know, and yeah. af after a couple of years, you realise people, you know, you don't waste time ringing people who aren't going to talk to you, you know. Mm -hmm. Like, I remember, like, starting off and you'd ring somebody at 11 o'clock in the morning and they'd say, yeah, I'll do that with you, but I'm working, so ring me back at six. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, you know, your entire day is kind of, well, I was going to get this finished. And then you ring the person back at six and actually you realize that it was just a red herring to get you off the phone and they're yeah. never going to answer it. So you kind of, you kind of learn those things too. But I, you know, I think the longer you do any of these jobs, the more of, I wouldn't say credibility necessarily, but obviously you, you speak to more people. Now, the best thing you can do in this job, um, I think, is spend a lot of time on the phone. You know, 
even like you could be bringing people who are local reporters uh, in, in counties, you could be bringing people in the GAA, you could be ringing whoever you have in good contacts. I think that the worst thing you can possibly do is kind of sit at home and read stuff off Twitter and, you know, kind of flag it that way because, um, you know, I think the best stuff comes from actually going out of your way to pick up the phone and ring people mm -hmm. and talk to them and build up a relationship. Like some journalists are, you know, are brilliant writers and they get off on the back of their writing ability. That's what gets them through on their job. But other people are just good at bumping into people when they're in grounds and, and making contacts. And that's, that's an equally good skill. That's an equally good skill. So I suppose you have to find what it is that you're good at, um, you know, as well as having some sort of area that you, you'd feel confident putting your thoughts into the world about. Um, so yeah, no, there is a bit of that. And I think, you know, making those contacts and making those phone calls, even though it can be awkward sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. you're, you're ringing people, essentially asking them to do you a favor, but giving you a piece of information or, or, or giving you a few words. And not everybody is uh, as inclined to do that possibly as they used to be. But, you know, I think it is best practice in this job. Yeah. And I think as well, like not to be too kind of big headed about the whole thing like you don't you don't know it all um, and not to be afraid to ask people for those favors or ask people for a steer like you know anytime I was covering club matches I would always ring a local journalist like whether it was Tyrone yeah. or Carlo or whatever games we were doing I'd always let ring the local stringer like whoever was covering the GAA beat in that county because they have the information that you need for some sort of a background into how these two teams are going to go up against each other if you're not going to club matches in Armagh you're not going to know you know what way they're going to line out um so i think sometimes it's just about being a bit humble as well and realizing yeah. you don't know at all like and make yeah. the phone calls yeah like one of the big <clears> traps <throat> traps i think the journalists fall into particularly sports journalists well maybe not particularly sports journalists but they're the journalists that i am most exposed to mm. you know we fall in love with it with our own opinions and you know they're, yeah. you know they're not anymore they're not any more formed or sort of valid yeah or valid or right than anybody else mm -hmm. um it's an awful affliction but again like, like i had to do a thing on at the weekends now kind of a, it's like a, a spread of previews and two weeks ago when you football and hurling and the first week of the ladies football i think there was no camogie i think there was you know 63 matches or something that i had to put the verdict on now clearly some of those yeah. verdicts weren't the most educated decisions i've ever made so you know but there's, a, there's a certain element of, of lagging when it comes yeah, it's to definitely, it's, yeah, it's definitely a balance because on the one side, like you have to back yourself as well. If you put something in print or, you know, if you say something on air or whatever it is, like you have to back yourself. But on the other side, you know, yeah, I don't know. I find that is sometimes a hard balance as well because you don't want to be the forceful opinionated person either. Like, No, and I don't think it comes across very well. No, it doesn't. You know, particularly when you're going to, like you're going to matches and, um, you know, you mightn't have seen a team for eight months or you mightn't have seen the team for two years when, when you go to some of the matches and all of a sudden you have to, you know, form an opinion on, on the basis of what you saw. So Especially you know, at the moment. Yeah, it's impossible think, at the moment, I think, yeah. I think a certain amount of humility is probably a, a good thing, even if uh, even if we all fall into the trap of not having it from time to time. Um, yeah, I think everybody does. Um, is there ever any kind of, uh, any arguments around, you know, who does what story? Like if you have four or five GA journalists working on the same kind of beat, as you say. Um, and there's like a rake of stuff happening during the week. Do you normally go to your editor, I want to do this feature? Um, or does the editor come to you lot and say, right, you're doing that, you're doing that, you're doing that. And then is there kind of, you know, not fisticuffs, but like, do people argue over what stories they want to do? I'm just trying to think of the other people that I might get into fisticuffs, whether I find them a chance. <laughs> no, it, like we, we tend to, like, you know, Colin Keyes is the GA editor or the GA correspondent of the Irish Independent. So, you know, all things being equal, Colin will take the big story of the day if he's working. But like if I was on earlier that day and I'd already made four phone calls, you know, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd dovetail with Colin and say, look, or with Frank Roach or with Michael Verney or Donica, you know, and say, look, you know, I, I'm already halfway down the road on this. So no, like, it, you know, they, again, there is a certain amount in this job of of kind of self-promotion and that kind of builds egos but we're all you know we're all making sure that the story more than likely than not if somebody else does the story you're relieved you know you just say well thankfully that story is covered and mm -hmm. you know you tend to know on a monday like on a monday if there's one big row over the if the row at the weekend was the black card and hurling you know 
like Colm's going to do, Colm Key's going to do a column for Tuesday's paper. So that's going to be what his column is. So by Monday morning, I'll already be thinking of what's the secondary story, what's the other angle, what's the different feature. So I think more or less we work well, but it's easier to communicate now than it used to be. Like we used to have editorial meetings in the office on a Monday and two people might not be there. And But actually, because we've all been confined to our houses over the last year, we actually you know, keep like as much as we all hate when the WhatsApp group starts sort of lighting up any of our WhatsApp groups or the Skype meetings on a Monday, Zoom meetings, they are very handy, you know, mm -hmm. they do work well because if you have a, a GAA team or any sort of reporting team with as many members as, as ours, well, like the worst thing any of us can do is waste two or three hours working on a story that somebody else has already agreed to do. So no, no, it, that, that doesn't tend to happen. It, it tends to be, um, we tend to communicate fairly well I like good to so you have a cohesive team glad to see it uh what's the what's the most difficult um you know type of article to produce because for me i would imagine one of them has to be the like on the whistle yeah i don't mind that so much i kind of like I, I like you know you get into a kind of a rhythm and a flow of a match report you know as in i think the first while when you start doing matches you just start panicking make sure you take everything in mm. but, but the more of the context of the match that you know coming into the game you know the more you've already kind of half written the piece in your head and it's just filling in the significance of what happens in front of you so I don't I, I don't mind that personally now there can be times when you're doing for people who don't know I should probably point out it's when you have to turn around a match report yeah. like on, you know the when point. the whistle is gone yeah, yeah. Um, the, the only panic I would have in that is that um you know, you can be covering hurling matches sometimes when they... I was just going to say, and yeah. they swing and swing and swing, and you don't know who's going to win, so you can't ride it until the end. Yeah, I remember I had to do an on-the-blow <laughs> report, and whatever about for online, you can obviously go back and ring the lads in the office and say, will you change Except, that? Yeah. But I think I had to do an on-the-blow, like the on, like literally on-the-blow, you're pressing send on the final whistle for the, the Kenny Waterford replay in Thurless. And if you remember that, like, oh, God, yeah. along, again, Colin Fenley got two great goals. And, and, and literally... Like the intro, the most important part of the piece had to be written eight times in the space of the last two minutes because you just did not know who was going to win the game. And you had to make sure that your running play, your description of the match underneath it wasn't in complete contradiction to what the first five paragraphs said. So, yeah, you can. But again, it's like anything, like the, the more times you do that, um, you know, the easier it gets. For me, the hardest, like I, I love writing features. I love talking mm -hmm. to people that are that are interesting that give that you know that have an interesting story um that's the bit that i like and you can you can take a bit of time over that and you know that you know nobody else is going to write that feature before you so you know you can put your own slant on it but i suppose the thing that's actually the trickiest is if there's some sort of legal element to it you know um, yeah it's a huge thing for newspapers uh, to to you know the libel laws are in ireland are very very sort of old outdated and stringent and you know you can fall foul of them without actually making too big a mistake and you know you have to make sure that you know if somebody is making a claim about somebody else if it's controversial that you actually put that claim to the person and an awful lot of times you know that person won't answer the phone to you so it can just be quite delicate you know because you know you've, you've been in a situation where you've you've, you've flagged with the office what story you're going to do they're kind of waiting on it but then by the same time you have to make sure that you've given everybody and you know if it's the contentious issue the two people might be talking to you on the phone but you know they might be kind of given out to you at the same time you know so i presume you have a legal team like that you can yeah, speak dial though yeah no it's it's it you know we i think our newspapers would do and yeah. um, have have somebody so literally you know you have a piece you send it bang what do you think they come straight back to you um but the, the problem with it is really it can be hard to tell the full story of a story um given the way the kind of the libels are, libels yeah. are because, because they can be so costly for media organizations, they tend to err on the side of caution, you know, and, and erring on the side of caution an awful lot of the time can see a story completely shelved or in some cases take the best parts out of a story, you know, mm -hmm. and like you want to be fair to everybody that's involved in it too. Like ultimately it will be your name on the story, but, um, you know, thankfully it doesn't happen very often, but just in terms of the delicacies involved, I think that one is probably the trickiest. What do you think um, in terms of like, I, I think most people who work in sport, um, particularly I think in sports journalism are, um, you know, play sport to a certain point until maybe they get a bit too busy or too old or whatever, whatever it is. Um, but they always 
they're all they've always been interested in sport and they've always um kind of held that interest it does mean though that a lot of the time like you mentioned you love the Sundays and going off to matches um and you know that for a lot of us is the highlight of the week um is it tricky though with do you find it tricky with like family life or social life or that kind of thing um I know like years ago I like I don't work every weekend now but I used to work every weekend for years and years and years and it was around the time where people were getting married and you know you know big birthday parties and stuff you just have to say no um and then you go into the like you've got two kids I've got two kids um I think it's probably fair to say it's tricky on the partners at weekends. Yeah, well, thankfully, you know, they're very understanding all of the time. Yes, um, indeed, all but, of the time. Um, no, like it, it is. I suppose you don't really appreciate how much, for instance, like Sunday is a family day until you don't until you actually get to spend one at home, you know, and, and like it's a great day to have at home. What happened said that if I was at home for a Sunday, pathetic and all as it sounds, you know, I'd probably end up sort of, watching television so you know like there is an element of that um you know my wife is from Tipperary horse and jockey so if there's a game in Torless we'll we'll kind of make a day or two out of it because you have to build that into it like it is easier when you're younger and you've got you've got fewer um you've got fewer things going on at home even from the point of view if you know if you're minding children during the day and you're trying to do a very detailed story and you know some of the stuff you're putting down is from memory and some of the stuff you have to look up, you know, you, you can, you can just miss things, you know? So that, that part of it can kind of get in the way. Um, but no, you do like even the last lockdown as hard as it was not having games, you know, as hard as it was not having live sport. Um, <laughs> there's a lot to be said for having Saturday and Sunday at home, you know, it, like it, it did make it easier. And I think the more that kind of that, that pull of, you know, normal life or having to give up hobbies or, not doing the things that you used to do mm. um i think it, i think it probably does make it harder to do the job i think that's probably where there's a small bit of burnout that comes along with it you know especially when you're like you could go to a match where there's three hours of traffic in front of you have to get to a match I know. you either get there four hours early or you get there five minutes to throw in and you're having a panic attack outside yeah. the ground and you know you know you're coming home there's you have to deal with one manager who happens to be particularly cantankerous on that given day you know like it, 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 that part of the day can kind of you know you can you can start the week off on the wrong foot you know by the time you get to monday if you've bad experience on a sunday but by and large for me anyway i still get a thrill out of going to matches um you know i, I haven't kind of grown cynical to that part of it at least you know even last year going to crow park in the empty stadium as hard and all as it was because like i'm like i, I love I, I love all Ireland finals, you know, like mm -hmm. the morning of an all Ireland final. Been lucky enough to cover them. I think everyone in both codes since 2006 or thereabouts. Like I, I wake up, you know, and literally bound out of bed because, you know, there's just a great buzz and feeling yeah. around around town. But I think last year without the people there, it just was not the same. And yet no. still there was a, a buzz going to it. Like you were still at an all Ireland final. And as, as rubbish as they were without supporters, you know, that was the Ireland final, you know, in 10 years time when they're showing it on reeling in the years, you were like, well, actually, I was there. Yeah. Oh, big time. Yeah. Um, it's funny you mentioned the word cynicism, because I think there is a good bit of cynicism sometimes in um, in a lot of jobs in sport, but I think particularly media jobs in sport, because I think people outside of the media circle think it's more glamorous than it is. Um, and if you think it's glamorous, it is not the job for you. <laughs> because it is not glamorous um, and there are a lot of pulls on your time and your you know resources and your <laughs> just patience really um, but do you it sounds like you still have the growth for it anyway you're not you haven't got to that point where you're like don't do don't do journalism it's crap it's you know because I hear a lot of that and it's kind of deflating yeah no I, 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 I probably there probably is a shelf life um, like I went down with you know in 2006 so that's 15 years uh, and like there are elements of it that, that you know when you drag yourself you know down for an All-Ireland press conference three hours away and because it's an All-Ireland press conference the players are you know they mightn't physically have a script in front of them but they're really yeah it's tattooed onto the inside of their eyelids I think and I'm just like this is this is kind of pointless but like thankfully you know I think with a lot of media you know the player engagement element of it has become so it has become so forced and so unproductive. I think media is actually starting to go away from that, um, you know, which is a good thing because when I started out, 
it was only really around the time in GAA anyway that the commodification of player access had started, you know. So we were going to, you know, all these promotional press conferences for, you know, sportswear manufacturers and you might have 10 players and it was a big event and it was actually, wow, this is a cool thing to go to. And now it's like, for a couple of hours to listen to some guy who doesn't want to talk and doesn't want to say anything and me who doesn't really have anything interesting to ask him because I know, you know, that element of it does wear a bit thin. But um, I think media organizations are, are, are starting to go away from that and realize that you can give insight and you, you can you can tell good stories about the games and the people involved without necessarily having to, you know, uh, perform root canal surgery on a, on a budding young GAA player, which, which is what it feels like, I think, sometimes. Yeah, it is. I, I, I'm kind of hoping it'll come full circle, though, because... Um, I think some of the younger players in particular are starting to realize that um, if they do those crappy interviews, um, it's not serving anybody really, because I mean, personally, if I, if I do an interview with like, I mean, I'm not going to name any players, but I've done this and I just have dropped it because yeah. it is useless. Yeah, okay. So not only are you not promoting yourself, by getting the interview on the television you're not doing your job that you're supposed to be promoting this brand um you know because usually it's a brand like you say it's lucasade or it's you know it's somebody is hosting this event um, i just dropped the interviews because there's nothing in them a lot of the time yeah. and i think people are starting to realize now that unless you give some nugget just throws a bone it's not going to get aired it's not going to get anywhere yeah, it's interesting just, just what reading the Naomi Osaka story this morning. And I think mm. it's, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing because particularly in pro sport, it's a very delicate ecosystem between, you know, the cash revenues that 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 formula is as, you know, prize money for elite athletes and the kind of, you know, the 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 promotion of products or the the media presence like that's all part of the same gig so if somebody kicks one of the legs from the chair like the rest of the chair is going to collapse to some degree the GA is a much more nuanced environment because players obviously aren't getting paid but the, the thing like I don't feel that any GA player should ever be forced into doing a media interview if they're not comfortable doing it that they absolutely should not have to do it and I, and I journalists moan about access in that situation, you know, I, 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 like I, I just I can't listen to it. But I do know from talking to players um, who would have been involved in setups that were very, very coy about what they did in terms of media, that an awful lot of players actually enjoy doing it. An awful lot of players are quite happy to sit down and, okay, they might not want to give you a very deep insight into the next match that they're playing, you know, or, or, or their opponents or whatever. But, but they're interesting people, you know, and where the kind of tension comes is where they're actually put under pressure from management not to say anything. So you have a weird thing happening where they're being put up for whatever reason to do interviews. And yet they're being put under pressure by management because this is the message. You know, th mm -hmm. this is this is what we're saying and this is what we're not saying. Um, and to me, that's just a very strange kind of dynamic. You know, I think there's a great opportunity for the GAA at the moment. The GA seem to be kind of, I wouldn't say that they're, I wouldn't say that they don't care, but, you know, we're at a stage now where because of the pandemic, an awful lot of county boards are going to struggle financially over the next while. And I heard Kevin McStay last year talk about, you know, the, prop, the, the problems involved in managing Roscommon in terms of their bills for, for nutrition and for travel expenses. And he had a very good idea that the GAA should meet those costs. So at least when it came to team preparation, all the money wasn't going on this, particularly in counties like Roscommon when you have so many players come up from Dublin. But I sort of think that that should be expanded even more and the GAA should say, okay, well, like here's a charter that you have to sign up for. And for us to meet all your costs or whatever, you know, make two players available the week of the game and the two players have to have played in the previous week's game or whatever it is, so that they can basically normalize media interaction with players. Mm -hmm. Because at the moment, there's a strange, strange tension that goes on in any interaction between media and GAA. And, you know, like they, they, they should be, okay, there's always going to be some tension, but like they should be able to benefit one another in a much greater way than they are at the moment. And I think if more people talk, 
it normalizes the talk and people become more used to players doing interviews, players get more accustomed to doing interviews without feeling under any great pressure to do them because it's so rare. And if everybody talks, well then, you know, there's a race to do the least, you know, like every time I remember recently we've shown up at all Ireland semi-final press conferences and a player gets pulled at the last minute because the manager found out that the other team that they're playing had only had two players up for interview, whereas they had three, you know. So you have this kind of, um, well, we're not doing any more than they do. And that's kind of fair enough. But I think, you know, in a situation where you have a governing body, I think there should be at least some sort of structure put on all that's of that. Just sound, that just sounds like damage limitation. And it also makes the media sound like absolute hounds. Like yeah. all we're trying to do is tell the stories and open the windows that people don't get to open, you know, during the week and, you know, shed some light on the, the stories around the game. Um, so I do think that sometimes the media is painted in an awful light. Um, and I'm not just talking about the GA. I'm actually specifically not talking about the GA. I think possibly more so in pro sports. Yeah. And like there's that thing again that you mentioned about the relationship between um, media and players or media and coaches in pro sports. It absolutely should be necessary because mm. there's so much money involved. Um, it is literally their job to to do some media to do some like you know PR um to do some flogging of runners or whatever it is it's quite literally their job and media organizations um particularly broadcast ones pay rights you know to get access so I think it actually should be more so and ironically like particularly in professional rugby a lot of the time it's very deadpan um, mm. and it's yeah. always off a script yeah I was absolutely very refreshed. frustrating I was really really refreshed the other day to see the Brooks Kepka interview when he said about yeah Brooks oh yeah Walker. that was brilliant and and like the thing about it was the, like the fact that he was insulting the Shambo was not the thing that appealed to me it was the fact that there was an athlete in a genuine moment of expression you know and 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 you know as I said it's not just journalists that are fascinated by really good sports people. We're all kind of fascinated mm -hmm. by them. Anybody who's interested in sport, like you hear two people at a bar talking about the same hurler for three hours. You know what I mean? Like we are invested yeah. in all these things. Um, and, you know, I, you know, I think, it, it, you know, you, you hear an awful lot of modern column, columnists saying, oh, well, there's no characters left in th these games anymore. They are. They just, they, they just withhold their character because, that's kind of seen as a beneficial thing to do, you know, mm. and, and and like that's not anybody's fault. That's not the player's fault because if everybody does it, it comes back to that word of culture. But I think it probably needs to start somewhere, you know. Yeah. Um, and you'd imagine that an organizing body would be the, the best place to do it. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see whether that comes to pass. Um, would you have any before we finish up? Would you have any um advice or um? Yeah, advice is probably too narrow um, a phrase to put on it, but um, for people who are thinking about getting into sports journalism, who are probably um, maybe younger and starting out, um, would you be a doer? Would you be a fan of just go and do it and start writing or, you know, pick up the pen, go to matches? Um, or would you be more of um, the traditional kind of go to college, get a degree? Like what, what kind no, of... like I went back, like I was doing, like I, I was doing business. I didn't like it. So I went back to Griffith College and studied it, put it like, like no harm to Griffith College or anywhere else. Like I just got into it. You know, I got a chance while I was in college. So yeah. I only just about finished college because I already started working for the Indo. So yeah, it, it, the thing is, it, you know, you can go and do a journalism degree and you can learn a lot about the history of journalism and, you know, journalism as a concept. But it's like, you know, it's, you know, nobody, like none of us are artists, but it is a craft, you know, and like any craft. You learn on the job. The best way to learn it is by doing it. But I, mm -hmm. I think even before you do that, you know, the most important thing is to figure out what you're good at. You know, so like, you know, you might be a brilliant writer, um, but you have to be a really brilliant writer to get a job on the back of your brilliant writing ability. You know, like, I mean, that there's very few people that are just going to coast straight into a job because they can write well. You have to be exceptional. Mm -hmm. But... If, for instance, you have an active interest in, you know, amateur golf in Ireland, you know, if you're a good golfer and, you know, you, you know who the pl next players are going to be on the Irish amateur golf. And, and, you know, that could be an area where you where you start off because, you know, like you have to think about what you what you have that's valuable, um, you know, and if you have an active interest and you have a greater level of knowledge about a particular part of sport than the person on the street, well, you know, that's what you sell um, because, you know, it can be all sorts of things. I was in college with 
uh, a guy, Kevin Egan, who's now working work Oh, I know Kev. Yeah, Kev yeah, was in RT for a while. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And he's, he's uh, working on Saturday Night Raw or something like that as a producer. But Kev always had that, um, I won't say cheesy American television he did, presenter he did. thing. Yeah, he's <laughs> but, great. But, yeah. You know, but, but did, that's, yeah. yeah, but that, like, I, I wouldn't be remotely surprised, you know, whereas yeah. Kevin might have said that I had a But, but he also found his niche, and that's what you're saying. Yeah, there. I'm always exactly telling people to find is. their niche. And yeah. he went to America, and he's married over there now to an American girl, but he went over there with a massive knowledge of European soccer. And he now, that's kind of what his main stay is or was anyway certainly he was basically mm. commentating on soccer man, European yeah, like, Champions League yeah like I went to college with a lot of people then for instance who who thought that their opinion as to why Jose Mourinho was going to be a better manager than Alex Ferguson was going to get them a, a job do you know what I mean like it, it, there's loads of people out there doing it so unless you're mm. unless you can do it as well as Ken Early can you know yeah you're, you're not gonna you're not gonna kind of get a job for it so you kind of have to like you know, get, getting stuck in is always the best way to go. Like, you know, it, it's been very hard, I would imagine, for journalists to get a start the last few years because you can't even go in on work experience in most places mm-hmm. now because there's restrictions going in. But just getting a handle on what the nuts and bolts of the job is is always a good way to go. But, but previous to that, figure out what you're good at. You know, there, there mm-hmm. are people who start off as writers that end up presenting radio programs. And there's people who want to get involved in television that actually realise that they're really good at writing written reports mm-hmm. so you know it's a trial and error thing but 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 i suppose essentially what you need to do is find what it is that you're good at find what it is that you can offer because you know if you have an interest in a particular sport because you played it or it's in your family and you know more about it than most people do well you know that could be the way to go and, and like once you're involved then the industry expands you know like the, the, the technology of how my stuff is published now is different to how it was when i started but like effectively the nuts and bolts of the job are the same do you think it's easier or harder now to, to get a start in sports media? It's probably easier in that there's more media, you know, like, yeah. I mean, like, you know, we have a big enough important team, um, but there are people who work exclusively for the websites and, you know, you can hear a radio program on RTE and there will be a written version of one of the interviews go up on the website. So I, I think there's a, a wider range of jobs than there were before involved mm-hmm. in media. I'm, it hasn't quite happened yet, but I would imagine the kind of, you know, the digital video, the the the, the snap uh, reports that people do on a mobile phone, like that's obviously going to be a, a bigger thing um, to come. But it's it's funny, like the, the media industry itself is very sort of slow to move on to the next thing. Um, like for years in the independent, we had, you know, people coming in who, who were going to tell us what the future of, of, media as a business was and then six months later another person would come in and tell us that it was you know and this just kept happening and like we only went behind the paywall last year you know in terms and and like that's a huge thing for 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 media and I think it's a very positive thing for media because if everything is for free there's no value on it and if there's no value on it there's too much and I think we, we are coming back to the we are coming back to the to the stage where people are putting a value on media um, by paying for it and, and and by paying for it I think people raise up the standard of journalism you know so so from that point of view I think the future journalism looks a bit more secure than it did a few years ago before there was this migration to getting people to pay for it because um, the way it was going wasn't really sustainable so mm-hmm. no I would imagine that it's easier I would imagine that it's easier but you know like if you're a, if you're for instance you know a soccer writer or you're interested in writing about the Premier League and that's the thing that really fascinates you well you know there's all sorts of websites there that have statistics that are published straight after matches about you know like if you can break down why Pep Guardiola's press didn't work quite as well against Chelsea than it did you know versus how Mikel Arteta is trying to set up Arsenal having worked with Guardiola you know that's a that's a that's um uh, facility that you can access very very easily now that people 10 years ago would not have been able to do. yeah that's true yeah so I think like if 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 if, if you're if you're clued into what you do um I think it's much easier to get going and there's other like the other thing is I'm sure there were great potential journalists that never got in got got a start you know and um, whereas now because with social media and everything else and blogs you know if if, if you're good enough people will definitely take notice. Um, I, yeah, I agree. I just think, you know, start writing or start a podcast or, you know, start a YouTube channel or start something because like the good people do get noticed and that's kind of, um, 
it's like a sense of justice or something as well, because there's more, like you said, there's more ways to get noticed now. Yeah, I think it's more of a meritocracy than it used to be too. You know, yeah, like, maybe, like yeah. People, people used to get jobs because, you know, they knew people and I just mm-hmm. don't think that's going to be the case anymore. Your your stuff is, is you know, it, it will, you'll be judged very quickly. That's the other thing. It's a yeah. very, very judgy industry. It, I could write a piece that's an opinion column and it's only my opinion. And because people don't agree with that opinion, you'll have everybody on Twitter saying that you're a lazy journalist. And, you know, <laughs> whether you are lazy or not, that's definitely not, you, you know, a, a sign of how lazy or otherwise that you are. So, mm. like, like your stuff is, is judged by people very, very quickly now. And I think... And there's people, also so many more people writing. Like, so there's so yeah. much there out there that if it's not good, it's just not going to fly. Yeah, like the only feedback we got for the first 10 years of me working in journalism was... Uh, Occasionally, you get a letter that came in, you know, with a stamp on it and red pen scrawled at the front because you said something that annoyed somebody in the newspaper. Whereas now it's it's instantaneous, you know. It's Twitter. Uh, it's Twitter and, and it's, you know, people are able to get in touch with you in email. So, look, I think it is more of a meritocracy now than it used to be. Um, like people aren't going to, people aren't going to get into positions unless they're able to do their job and it'll be very yeah. sort of quickly apparent whether they are or they aren't you know so yeah. yeah no I think it's more accessible than it was but like the two things I think are going out and starting it off your own bat um, and then the other thing is just f- find your niche you know figure out what it is that you're good at because if you're interested enough in sport to want to make a career out of it you definitely have one yeah okay that's a good way to finish um, anyway any Anyway, you can remember your first, your favourite moment working in sport, your favourite day covering a match. Uh, I'll, I'll pretend for a second that I can't remember, but uh, no. <laughs> I, I, I remember the 2011 All-Ireland football final uh, okay. in Crow Park, just because, you know, getting involved in sports journalism would have been, um, would, have, would have been because, you know, the Dublin footballers were the thing that I was most interested in. And I suppose it started in 2006, um and it was five years of you know there was always a day of the year when there was a when there was a poll and I was, I was working for the evening herald so it was, it was very dublin centric mm-hmm. so there was always a monday in the year when there was a big post-mortem as to what had gone wrong and will they ever get one and that was a, it, it was it was a surprise one but some of those hurling matches as well um i like i think some of the All-Ireland Hurling semi-finals we had in the last decade were just yeah. off the charts. Like, you were just like, what, what have I seen here? But for, for kind of magic, um, the other one I'd say is the 2013 Hurling final replay. It was the first oh, one yeah. that had been played on a Saturday night under lights. Yeah. And Shane O'Donnell scored a hat-trick and we had no That's idea right. Shane O'Donnell yeah. won. <laughs> and, and it was just, I, I remember actually going, this is an incredible thing to watch. Yeah. You know, uh, so, so other than the, the parochial choice of the 2011 Hurling fo- football final, um, I think that's probably the one. That was one of Peter McKenna's as well, would you believe? Oh, right. That hurling match, yeah. Um, and the Longford Miners as well was another one of his. Um, Connor, thank you so much. That was really interesting. Um, I think it'll be. I think it'll be good for anybody who is thinking about getting into sports journalism. And I'm glad I got somebody who isn't cynical, <laughs> because I think there's probably too much of that. But um, thanks a million, and um, I will talk to you soon. Cheers, well.